Irish Nation, another cardiac game, theatrics, and understatement as the Irish survive in Blacksburg and exit Sandman with a victory. And with Alabama losing to Texas A&M, head coach Brian Kelly and company now hold the nation's longest active win streak against unranked teams. Win your clunkers continues to be the theme. Absolutely. And theatrics is an understatement. We'll dive into all the details of ND's 32-29 come-from-behind victory. But this game saw multiple lead changes, multiple QB changes for both teams, and the script seemed to flip every other quarter. Wild win, but the Irish get the 5-1 and one heading into their bye week. Exciting show for our listeners. We'll start this week with listener questions once again, then break down the Hokie game. And with no game uh, preview, given this is an upcoming bye week, we've got two special segments this week. A deep dive into Brian Kelly and the quarterback room during his tenure. Obviously a big topic this year, given the ongoing carousel at the quarterback position. And then we'll re- uh, we're really excited for our first guest interview on the podcast. Walk-on sophomore running back Sam Asaph joins the show to close out this week's show. Awesome lineup. Before we dive in, a couple housekeeping items. We have a huge request for each of our listeners. Write us a review on your podcast platform of choice, and if you like the show, tell a friend. We've seen a lot of support and a growing listener base and want to continue that momentum going into the second half of the year. Given the interview with Sam, we're going to skip the Four Horsemen and ND Obscurity section this week, but we'll bring back that soon, we promise. And just a heads up that the bye week will be a bit of a wild week as Brett plans on ta- uh, to take advantage uh, of the off week with a golf trip. Um, and then both of us will be traveling to the five, uh, 574 for the big showdown against USC. So we'll definitely have another episode to preview USC and cover some other mid- midseason topics. But just a heads up that next week's show might be off our normal Monday routine. routine. Uh, a couple other things to mention. So uh, something that we've done the last couple weeks is We've challenged our followers on Twitter to predict the score. And the uh, person who predicts the score the closest, we promised that we would give them a shout out. So this week's winner was Michael Kraft, Dr. Michael Kraft, our, actually our in-house uh, doctor for the bo- podcast. So he predicted an 11-point victory, which, uh, again, I just love, the, uh, I just love the, how, how positive like, our, our, our fan base is. No, hardly anyone ever predicts a loss. Um, so... Congrats, Kraft. Good score prediction. Another shout-out to uh, another friend of the show, Michael Gills. He got married a couple weeks ago. Congrats, Michael. Hope, you, uh, hope you're having a great honeymoon. And then, uh, finally, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that um, on last week's show, I predicted a three-point three Notre Dame win, so uh, pretty much spot-on. So, as Brett said last week, a, a point for him. This week is certainly a point for me. Good work. Good work. I love it. All right. With that, should we dive into listener questions? Let's do it. We chose achievement over comfort. First question, Danny from Chicago asks, want to know if this will be the most productive freshman class in the Brian Kelly era, Uh, maybe in Notre Dame history. Uh, Certainly we have a true freshman now playing at quarterback, running back, wide receiver, tight end, left tackle, all getting a lot of snaps in this game. Certainly on the offensive side of the ball, Buckner and Joe Alt emerging as potential starters here for the rest of the season. And that's not even to mention the now injured Blake Fisher, who's obviously got a bright future ahead of him as well. And add Logan Diggs, Lorenzo Styles, and Kane Barong. They're, they're all getting in the rotation now. Definitely. Buckner certainly looks like one of the best true freshman QBs in Notre Dame history. Clawson and Quinn statistically, probably the two best freshman QBs. Quinn threw for 1,800 yards his freshman year, but had 15 interceptions and overall was a struggle. Similarly for Clawson, he threw for 1,200 yards and rotated at QB in the 3-9 and debacle. Clawson was also sacked for an ND record 34 times in that season. So if Buckner wins the job and is productive in the next six games, that could go a long ways in comparison to those other freshmen. And then we mentioned Joe Alt certainly playing really well right now. That's the other big name to highlight out of the freshman class. We'll talk more about him in the game recap. Outstanding performance in Blacksburg. But the rest of the freshmen, primarily spot duty for injuries. Not sure we're really going to see a breakout stat line. You know, just for some comparisons of the other kind of all Notre Dame freshman team, Darius Walker ran for 800 yards as the team's leading rusher in 2004. Audrey Denson, who went on to be Notre Dame's all-time leading rusher, he had 650 yards as a freshman. So what we're seeing from the freshmen, not totally off the charts from a historical perspective, at least statistically, certainly that could change pretty quickly, though, if Buckner becomes the starting QB for the second half of the season. 
Okay, next question. And uh, I really like this one. Oklahoma has made headlines this year for booing Heisman hopeful Spencer Rattler. Do ND fans deserve similar criticism for treatment of Jack Cohn? I'm not sure. Certainly, uh, I haven't seen Jack get booed by the home crowd. First point we want to highlight is that from what we've seen on social media and elsewhere, most of the criticism has been placed on Brian Kelly. And frankly, highly paid head coaches at top programs are in the spotlight. And that criticism seems fair game to me. Yeah, we, we do want to highlight that Notre Dame fans can certainly be better. Um, Notre Dame fans aren't perfect. Kyle Hamilton and his roommates, Cam Hart, KJ Wallace, and Connor Radigan, they started a podcast this year called Inside the Garage. Highly entertaining, great perspective from inside the locker room. We strongly recommend checking that out. We've we've really enjoyed getting to listen to that over the course of the season. And after Cincinnati's loss, they talked about receiving racial slurs and DMs on social media. They talked about being out for a meal with their family the day after the game and getting heckled by fans. So Notre Dame fans certainly aren't perfect. And that stuff's just unacceptable and has no place in college sports. With name, image, and likeness, uh, a number of guys of these guys are getting paid sponsorships. But we're talking 18, uh, 19-year-old kids. And regardless, there's just no place for racial slurs or heckling someone during a family moment away from the football field. Just no excuse. Uh, we're talking about college level, but I mean, that, that goes for any level. Um, but anyways, I, I thought uh, Hamilton's podcast uh, had a great quote. We want to be treated as people, not as chess pieces for whatever team you want to win a football game. Uh, great quote. So if you're upset with Brian Kelly, we hear you. The QB situation is a head scratcher at times, but let's also recognize Jack Cohn demonstrated some very strong uh, borderline absurd perseverance in this game. Gets benched, comes back, leads the team to the comeback victory. Whatever you want to say about Kelly, go for it. But let's also take a step back and celebrate Jack Cohn because that was that was an incredible moment. It was, it was freaking awesome. Going to our last question for this week. Third straight week, the Notre Dame's opponent has gotten a bye week to prepare for the Irish. How big of an impact does that make? Look, this happens every year. It's a function of Notre Dame being an independent where other teams can set up for their big Notre Dame matchup. But we obviously can't do that for all 12 of our games on the schedule. Um, I don't think you're starting to see the impact um, from, from the buys. But what I do think we're starting to see is the impact in terms of health. Um, this Notre Dame team is banged up. Mayer, Tyree, all nursing injuries and missed time in the game. Cone and Buckner have been nursing injuries. Blake Fisher, Moalo, Leofau, Simon, they're all out with season-ending injuries. So to me, it's less about the other team getting extra rest and more time to prepare for Notre Dame. It's more that we could use the rest. So I think, you know, we got to 5-1 and one going into this bye week. I think it's going to be a really big lift for this team to just reset They've battled a lot of close games, so mentally, physically, it's it's been a grind the first half of the season. Um, I think this is a really well-placed bye week for, for Notre Dame, and, and hopefully they're able to take advantage of it. Yep. Now, the injuries were certainly showing themselves near the end of that Virginia Tech game. Um, the other thing that is a, a bigger impact this year is just Andy's relative inexperience. It seems like we say this every week, but Virginia Tech returned 15 starters from last year. In most seasons, that would be a lot, but this year, that's only 96 in the country. Uh, ND only returned nine starters from last year, which would be, uh, which was 127th out of 130 in the country. So everyone wants to talk about recruiting talent gaps and how we should be able to just outmatch teams like Virginia Tech or Cincy. Well, the other side of the equation isn't just talent. It's also experience and cohesion of the team. So for ND with almost dead last in, re- in recruiting experience combined with a rash of injuries, that's a big disadvantage. Bit of a tangent from the question about other teams' bye weeks, but I think the bigger storyline is just how experienced Andy's opponents are as they take advantage of extra COVID eligibility. Uh, well, Andy graduated a normal, its normal share of players from last year's team, and I, I think you really see that play out in a number of facets of the game. All right, let's, uh, let's get into this crazy, wild game that was Notre Dame versus Virginia Tech. You don't have to worry about the noise. You don't have to worry about uh, what your record is. You just have to do what we've done all year. Don't change a thing. If you play with a great attitude, which you had a great attitude this week. 32-29. Irish escape with a late field goal. They came back down 10-0. Then the lead changed five times from there, concluding with Doors' 48-yard game winner with 17 seconds left. Before that kick as Andy was driving, we were texting each other and saying, we really hope we score a TD so this doesn't come down to door. He's, of course, been shaky uh, a bit at times the, the last two seasons, but absolutely drills it despite fans pointing uh, illegal lasers in his face. 
you could see Kelly on the sideline having some very choice words with the ref leading up to that. Uh, but doesn't really matter. Incredible stuff. He nailed it. Product of the Charlotte area. Comes back as a super senior. Really happy for Jonathan Doerr. Huge moment. He got one of the game balls from, from Coach Kelly this game. Just awesome stuff for that kicker. Yeah, as, as every week, let's start by diving into the advanced box score. Post-game win expectancy was 77% for Notre Dame. So the advanced metrics had Notre Dame as the better team in this game by a pretty wide margin, which is crazy if, if you think about Virginia Tech had a 29-21 lead late in this game. And at that point in time, when, when they went up by eight, uh, ESPN's win predictor had Notre Dame as just a 4% chance to come back against Virginia Tech. So a lot of things went against Notre Dame throughout much of this game. Um, the Buck, uh, the Buckner pick six, probably top of that list, but play in, play out. Notre Dame was the better team. They were resilient. They hung in there, made the plays when they needed to down the stretch and, and came away with a great victory on the road. On offense, Notre Dame's success rate was 49%. That was ND's highest success rate in any game this season. You want that number to be in the 40s. High 40s is really good. So ND was consistently moving the ball throughout the game. And on top of that, Virginia Tech only generated havoc on 7% of plays. In fact, the Hokies' two sacks were the only two tackles for loss that they had all game. But not an explosive day for Reese's offense. Buckner hit the two big connections to Austin for 46 yards and Avery Davis for 37 yards. But longest run of the day was just 11 yards, which belonged to Buckner. So very successful moving the ball, very successful preventing the defense from disrupting drives, which is key. That's something we haven't really seen uh, to this extent so far this season. Um, but again, uh, and overall, this led to a really nice offensive performance despite not much explosiveness. Yeah, staying on schedule really seemed to be the theme for, for Tom Reese and the offense. But before moving on to the defense today, we've just got a lot of questions and, and topics to discuss about this offense. Certainly top of mind by, I think, virtually every single Notre Dame pundit out there and, and a lot of the college football media. So coming into this game, the first big topic was obviously quarterback. Kelly was secretive about who was going to start. Almost everyone in the world, including our podcast last week, predicted it would be Drew Pine. Kelly names Cone the starter. Throughout the week, he uh, hinted that he was opting for more experience, citing how they had graded out all of the players, not just in games, but also performance and practice and, and consistency. And so Cone gets the nod, and he really struggles. We, we mentioned the offense had a very, very high success rate of 49% for the game. Well, that was just 23% in the first quarter with Jack Cohn running the offense. One of the worst offensive quarters for, for Notre Dame's entire season. After that, Notre Dame's success rate was a meteoric 55% in quarters two, three, and four, with Buckner leading most of that in the second and third quarter. We never saw Drew Pine. And so now going forward, the big question, who's the starter? I think it's a tough question. Maybe we should bifurcate who should be, uh, and who will be. I wouldn't be at all surprised if Jack Cohn convinced the coaches of his potential with the poise that he showed in that fourth quarter. But Tyler Bruckner, wow, he made some very true freshman-looking mistakes. Two very costly interceptions, including the pick six. And it sure looked like a limited playbook with Buckner in the game. A lot of folks are criticizing Kelly for limiting Buckner to smaller packages and not the full playbook. I think that's just a silly criticism. There's enough to harp on Kelly about, but we need to remember Buckner is a true freshman who didn't play as a senior in high school because of COVID and missed his entire junior season with an ACL injury. Clearly a dynamic athlete with all the potential in the world, but he's barely played football in three years. And it's pretty clear he's raw. He got confused by coverages on multiple occasions. Uh, frankly, he's lucky there wasn't more than the two interceptions I can think off the top of my head. There, there was one other play where it really just bounced right off the defender's hands. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Everyone is ready to crown Buckner as the obviously more productive quarterback. That's what I saw during the game, too. If, if you'd asked me Saturday night who was the better quarterback in this game and throughout the season, my, my immediate reaction was Tyler Buckner's the guy. Stepping back and looking at the stats, though, tells a very different story and that there wasn't really the case in this game. Buckner's predicted points added per play was just 0 0.1. Um, the pick six really hurt that stat. You mentioned a couple other throws he missed. He missed a pretty easy screen pass. It, it just seemed like the short touch passes... It almost had a little bit of Brandon Wimbush reminiscent where, you know, the long ball looked beautiful and the short, easy throws looked challenging. And so point one predicted points added per play. That's a pedestrian figure. Um, again, you want to be around that point four number. So he was well off of that mark. 
And then according to Pro Football Focus, Buckner graded out as a 47. So that's a very replaceable below average grade from, from Pro Football Focus. He was 73 as a runner, but only 29 as a passer. So again, really struggled reading coverages and, and, and getting, you know, into the correct protections and, and play calls. Jack Cohn, on the other hand, one of his best performances, he graded out at 78, according to Pro Football Focus, his best grade since Florida State. Now, where does Drew Pine fit in? We said last week that he's got the best Pro Football Focus grades out of all three, but we want to be really transparent to our listeners. Buckner was an absolute spark in this game, absolute dynamic runner, and then the big win makes it easy to forget about some of the huge mistakes he made when Notre Dame already had the lead back. Uh, you know, driving 21-16, a chance to really put this game away. He throws two interceptions and three drives. So we love Tyler, tremendous future. Not sure he's already yet, um, you know, all, all the way there to, to lead the program. Jack Cohen, on the other hand, gets the huge fourth quarter moment. And Drew Pine is maybe the guy outside looking in, not getting to play in this big game. Yep. A few comments from beat writers uh, throughout training camp, throughout early in practice, they would mention uh, that Pine and, and, and Cone, Pine Cone, uh, they they were they were they were like generally more accurate than Buckner. I don't think there was like a dramatic gap, but they would say like when you observe practice, you could tell that there was a difference in accuracy, um, at least at this stage. And so I think, yeah, like Brett said, Buckner, threw, he threw a beautiful deep ball. I mean, like the way it flew off his wrist, uh, I don't want to. I mean, this is like a, a this is a very aggressive comparison, but it reminded me a little bit of Tua, the way it just kind of flew off his his wrist like so seamlessly. And then obviously you got the run potential too. So clearly the upside's there. He showed out pretty very well for a freshman who's played who's played so little so far. But he is a true freshman, and he's still working on his accuracy a little bit. And I think that that showed up a little bit today. Uh, it was a reminder of, of where he's at. Um, but getting back but getting back on topic. So now who's who's starting against USC? Man, I don't know, but. Uh, and we both agree on this big butt. Uh, this team already has an L. Probably, key emphasis on probably, probably out of the college football playoff. Building up Buckner's experience for the future does seem paramount. And this offense runs better. Uh, if you said we had last year's offensive line, Cone very likely might be the better option. But with Cone's inability to move around in the pocket, his footwork even just to reset and get off good throws when he needs to slide up in the pocket, um, you know, it's just that, that weakness in his game is exacerbated by other weaknesses in this offense. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean, if you'd asked me this question after the game on Saturday night, I think I would have said 100% Buckner. But as we've gone through the advanced analytics and, and knowing how Kelly and Reese really rely on, on that type of thinking and, and they talked about grading out the quarterbacks— it, it might be Cone. Um, and, and frankly, he maybe deserves it after the fourth quarter heroic. So I think you and I are both maybe a little up in the air on this. I'm, I'm not sure if it's Buckner or Cone. I was leaning Buckner, and now I'm kind of leaning Cone, and I think we're all going to be on the edge of our seat the next two weeks waiting to figure this out. Definitely. Well, and one development we're about to talk about right now, which would play well for Cone, as we said, a better offensive line suits him better. Um yeah, I mean, it does make a difference. So that being said, let's talk about that offensive line. Best game by far. Patterson grades out at 85 on pro football focus. Josh Log is 78. Joe Alt, 76. Kane Madden, 74. Zeke Carell really struggled in the first quarter. Interestingly, he got benched at around the same time uh, that Cone did. He graded out at 44, but then Christopher comes in and really cements the line. So easily best game for this offense and like we said if the line does gel and become solid that makes Cone a much more viable option yeah and only two sacks allowed in this game one really appeared to be on Jack Cone so the offensive line was credited with only giving up one sack according to pro football focus and then line yards was 3.3 we talked about this stat going into the game line yards is really a measurement of how many yards of penetration the offensive line generates on an average rushing play before uh, the running back is contacted by the defense. Three, really good. Two and a half, really bad. Notre Dame's been around three for better part of a decade, and they've been around two and a half this year. Um, so they really went from really good to really bad um, this year. And a big question we had going into this game, in fact, I predicted this might be the breakoff for it, is can Notre Dame really control the line of scrimmage in an area that was a perceived weakness for the Hokies? And that was a resounding yes. Um, 3.3 line yards per play. Uh, rushing the ball if that was uh, replicated for an entire season that would be top 10 in the country so 175 rushing yards for the Irish of course that looked a lot better with Buckner running the RPO look 
But great game overall for the offensive line. I think it gives us a lot of promise that, you know, look, Cincy and Wisconsin, two toughest defenses you're going to see all year. Um, really probably on anyone's schedule, that's about as tough of a matchup as, as you're going to get, let alone a back-to-back week. So those games are in the rearview mirror. And now I think especially with the bye week, you could really see this group kind of grow into their paws in, in the second half of the year and really be the turnaround for the offense. Last offensive topic, injuries. Buckner tweaks his ankle, already dealing with a hammy. Didn't get an update on that injury, but he was seen warming up on the sideline after the injury, so presumably not very serious. Uh, at least from, I, I would say, from like the uh, the way everyone was behaving towards him on the, on the sideline. I didn't get the impression that, that it looked serious. Um, anyway, Chris Tyree, he has a turf toe injury. Pending severity, that's a one to two week injury, so hopefully back for USC. And then Mike Mayer was, was limping in pregame warmups. He... He wanted to play even if limited action, but coaching staff said no. Also hopeful he's back for USC with the bye week to rest up. Look, if you said Tyree and Mayer missed huge chunks of this game, <laughs> we're playing three different quarterbacks, and now to our fourth string left tackle, uh, how would we play? I certainly wouldn't have said we were 5-1 and one going into the bye week. Speaks volumes to the depth of Endy's recruiting, and the coaches getting these kids to stay mentally focused week in and week out. Kelly really praised the mental toughness of the group, said it's the best and most enjoyable he's ever coached. Later on in the show, we'll hear from Sam Asif discuss discuss that from a player's perspective. But uh, but that's on full display when you consider these injuries. Yeah, I, I really want to emphasize that point. I mean, Kelly spent a lot of time talking about this in, in the post game press conference of just um, how determined this team is, and and it has not been a pretty path to get to five and one. But I think everyone thought this was going to be a somewhere in between a rebuild and reload year. So if you said for the injuries we've had without being able to get the quarterback position settled, if we'd be five and one going into the bye week, how would you feel? Preseason, we would have said great. I mean, preseason, we would have said if you get to five and one through the Cincy and Wisconsin and Virginia Tech games, that's the path to 10 wins. Um, November is definitely the, an, an easier part of the schedule. Um, and so, you know, I, I think Kelly deserves a lot of credit that despite a lot of controversies, despite it not looking pretty, despite, you know, things still like big decisions coming up, we still don't know who the quarterback is. Uh, the team is ready to play every single week. That's a big testament to the guys in the locker room and, 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 and the coaching staff. Okay, it seems like we've now been talking about the offense for an hour. Let's get to the defensive side of the ball. The Hokies success rate was just 34%. Again, if you're an offense, you want that number in the 40s. So 34%, very much below expectations for Virginia Tech. They came out with a bang in the first quarter. They had a 46% success rate in the opening period. But after that, only 30% in the second quarter going forward. So Notre Dame's defense, they looked uh, really vulnerable to start. We were texting about that. It really felt like it wasn't even just the offense struggling for Notre Dame. It was the defense was maybe even the bigger issue in the first quarter. But credit to Freeman, they settled in. They bottled up the Hokies the rest of the way, really put together a great performance. And this stat was a surprise to us, but ND generated a very solid 16% havoc rate. We were, we were tracking this during the game and thought that metric was closer to 8 9%. Something we usually do uh, just within some of our group of friends is we'll try to take guesses at havoc rate, success rates, things like that. And uh, this was one we, we were off on. Um, yeah, like I said, we pretty much all thought it was around 8 to 9%. And what we missed as we went back through the stats, uh, a lot of the Hokie runs were stuffed for one and two yard losses that got the Hokies off schedule. In total, in total, seven tackles for loss despite just one, one sack. So very disruptive uh, despite uh, what it seemed like at the surface level. Yeah, and explosiveness for the Hokies was 1.4. That, that's what really kept them in this game. But again, not all explosiveness is created equal. So um, again, an explosive rating anywhere above 1.2 is, is pretty good. So Notre Dame was 0.8 in this game. So Notre Dame deemed to not be a very explosive offense, despite the 46-yarder to Austin and the, and the 37-yarder to Lindsey. And so Virginia Tech's was 1.4, but Virginia Tech didn't have a play longer than 25 yards in this game. Um, but what they did have is a lot of 10, 15, 20-yard chunk plays and quarterback scrambles. Burmeister had the 19-yard scramble on, on third and long in, in the fourth quarter. So their longest play, only 25 yards. But just consistently, when, when they were successful, which wasn't very often, but when they were successful, they're getting 10, 15-yard chunk plays. And you see that in the explosive rating. So, um, you know, an, an, an area where Virginia Tech was able to hang in there by, by getting 
chunkier plays, but it, it just wasn't enough to consistently move the ball with with that low success rate. Yeah. And Virginia Tech, they benefited from the pick six, also scored on a relatively short field following Buckner's second interception. So other than points off turnovers, uh, just 15 points allowed by Notre Dame in this game. Really, really solid effort by the defense. Looking at the pro football focus grades, great group effort. Eight guys were between 68 and 76. Um, so no kind of one standout performance. Jason Adamalola, he leads the way with a grade of 76. He had two stuffs on short yardage situations. Kyle Hamilton, very assignment correct game. He was so effective. They only threw the ball in his direction three times. That that uh, only led to one completion. So Hamilton just really a shutdown defender in, in the passing game. And then Tariq Bracey really, really deserves a shout out. He graded out poorly in this game at 52. It was a struggle all night for Tariq. He was getting picked on. He was targeted seven times. That led to six catches for 75 yards. But that seventh attempt at a Bracey, he breaks on the route. He comes up with a huge interception. It really swings this game back in favor of the Irish. So big moment for Tariq, staying with it and, and coming up with a big play to, despite, you know, pretty tough night and a, a tough matchup for him. And JT Bertrand. Kelly must be listening to our podcast in his midweek interview with the media. He agreed that JD needed to get some breathers. Well, unfortunately, he didn't. Played 63 of 68 snaps, but held up pretty well. Grade of 57, so still not at a quote-unquote starter level grade, but much more assignment correct. Uh, Felt like it was overall a step in the right direction for him. Foskey, uh, it seemed like Foskey was everywhere again. Only a 68 grade from pro football focus, but... Six QB pressures in this game, including a huge sack in the second half. It, it really felt like he also had a bunch of pressures on the QB that were almost sacks. Again, we were dealing with a mobile QB, so it makes sense that he would be able to slip away. But felt like felt like Foskey was getting back, getting back there all game long. Uh, what else should we cover? Uh, enter Sandman and Lane Stadium. I, I just want to quickly touch on this. I've I've said this before, and there's a lot of different stats about them not having like a big night primetime win at Lane Stadium since the Mike Vick and Marcus Vick era, era. but I really wanted to avoid bulletin board material in, in our preview show last week. So Lane Stadium, awesome environment, but it doesn't work. They're now 11-9 and in their last 20 home games against Power 5 opponents. Um, that might be more an admonishment of the Justin Fuentes era, but that's very average at home. Um, you know, looking at a Notre Dame team that I think has had one loss in the last three or four seasons at home. Um, Virginia Tech, just a little over 500 in, in home games against Power 5 opponents. I agree. Very cool environment, but it doesn't seem uh, as intimidating as, you know, playing, playing, at, playing at Alabama, playing at Clemson. Granted, those are much better teams, and, and maybe, that, maybe that's the difference there. Maybe, maybe Virginia Tech, uh, they just haven't had a team that's really taken advantage of that environment yet. Uh, moving on, Kevin Austin. Didn't mention his name yet. Really nice bounce back game after what I, I know he thought could have been a much better performance against Cincy. This is a guy a lot of people thought would transfer at some point. He was in the coach's doghouse, wasn't getting on the field as an underclassman. Then the injury bug hit him a couple of times too on top of that. Targeted just four times in this game, but he made the most of it. Three catches for 70 yards, including the beautiful 46-yarder down the sideline that he almost turned into an acrobatic touchdown. Uh, from a couple angles, I thought he, he managed to pull it off. However, there was one one particular angle uh, that uh, showed that he was clearly uh, out of bounds. He's now over 300 yards on the season, uh, trailing only Mike Mayer for, for team lead. Really happy to see him bounce back with a nice outing. And obviously that two-point conver- conversion was beautiful. Huge, um, huge moment in the game. I saw I saw an angle. Like I thought when when Cone threw that up, I was like, "Oh no, this is a prayer." And uh, he somehow snagged it. There was an angle I saw a photo of, of Austin. And it looked like the defender on him may have actually been grabbing his face mask a little bit. Um, his head was like twisted in a really funny way, but he managed to come down with it. But again, be- uh, fantastic to see this from from Austin. Really really happy for him. Yeah, it was very reminiscent to me of Tom Reese in the triple overtime game against Pittsburgh in 2012 when he was under duress, almost takes a sack, and kind of looks like he just blindly chucks it up, but it was in the direction of Mike Floyd, so all things work out <laughs> when you throw the ball to Mike Floyd, and he came down yep. with like a ridiculous third-long conversion. That's kind of what Jack Cohn looks like when he scrambled on that two-point drill. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so last shout-out for the Virginia Tech game. Um, Dax Hollifield, the Hokies' middle linebacker who got um, unfortunately ejected for targeting in this game, but at the time of leaving the game, he had eight tackles. We forgot to call this out in the preview. Uh, He's from Shelby, North Carolina. That's the hometown of my mother-in-law, Betsy, the official mother-in-law of the Garish Talk podcast. Uh, Notre Dame actually offered him as a recruit, and I went and watched one of his playoff games uh, his senior year of high school. Dude was a beast in high school. But so is his entire high school team. Shelby High is an absolute juggernaut in North Carolina football. So just some quick uh, tangent stats here. 14 state titles, including at least one in each of the last six decades. They've had back-to-back titles four times, including a four-peat from 2013 to 2016. So shout out to Shelby High, small town football at its finest. And with that, let's move on to our next segment, Brian Kelly in the quarterback room. If you truly want to make your mark, you have the opportunity to do that. This is your choice. In our next segment, we're going to recap Brian Kelly's track record of developing quarterbacks and managing the QB room. We're going to start by looking at the advanced metrics for each starting QB under Kelly. Then we're going to review some of the QB controversies, benchings, and switcheroos. And then our last perspective will look at how recruiting has or hasn't translated into on-field success. Starting with the advanced metrics, we looked at three of them. The quarterback passer rating, pro football focus takes college passing stats and converts it into the NFL passer rating system. So this is on a scale of 0 to 158. For some historical context, in 2019, Joe Burrow set the all-time record, um, at least since 2014 when pro football focus started tracking this. He had a passer rating of 144. 105 was the cutoff for top 25 ranking across college football in this metric last year. And the often criticized, you know, Nebraska quarterback Adrian Martinez or or Penn State quarterback Sean Clifford, just for context last year, both were averaging this metric at 90, middle of the pack. So on a scale of 0 to 158, 144 makes you the GOAT, 105 puts you in the top 25, 90 is average. So how have Kelly's QBs done in this metric? Ian Book spent three seasons between 98 and 105, so definitely above average. His peak ranking was actually in 2019 uh, when he had a lot of better receivers that year with Cole Komet and Chase Claypool. And the passer rating was good for number 25 in the country. Before that, Wimbush was outside the top 100 both years as a starter, uh, a quite bad passer rating of 64 the year Ian Book took over as a starter in 2018. Before that, Deshaun Kaiser had passer ratings of 96 and 98, He was around number 40 in the country both years. And then Everett Golson in 2014. First year we have this data, he had a 94 passer rating, good for number 48 in the country. This year, Jack Cohn's rating is 96. That's tracking it around number 48 in the country. So eight seasons, Ian Book tops the charts at number 25 in his 2018 campaign. And NDQBs under Kelly really living in that top 50 range, but not cracking that top 25. Next metric we looked at, pro football focus grades. We, we talk about this one a lot in our game previews and recaps. Uh, over the course of a season, grades of 80 or higher basically signal NFL-level talent if you're playing for Power 5 schools like Notre Dame. Uh, Ian Book also tops that chart with a pro football focus grade of 79 in his senior year, 78 and 70 in his two seasons prior to that. Wimbush, he had a grade of 75 his first year as a starter, then a big drop-off down to 60. Kaiser was a 77 in his first season as a starter, then a drop-off to 68. Everett Golson graded out at a 78 in 2014. So a couple trends to note here. One, a recurring theme of players dropping off from year one to year two as a starter. That occurred with both Kaiser and Wimbush. Um, even Golson arguably had a drop-off, although that was hard because we don't have pro football focus grades back to his first year as a starter, and then, of course, the season-long suspension in there. But... Typically, looking to see second and third year starters really transcend. Kelly's QBs have regressed. The second big observation: no quarterback has hit that uh, 80 plus grade mark. That's really signaling Notre Dame hasn't produced an NFL caliber QB. Now that 80 plus grade, it's not foolproof. Book surprised many when he was taken in the fourth round by the Saints. Kaiser was a high pick for uh, Mike's Browns, but really struggled in his NFL career. So. Some draft day success for Irish quarterbacks, really no on-field NFL performance to speak of, and and you can really see that in in these pro football focus grades. The other thing worth noting about pro football focus grades, the Irish have done well at other positions. Running back, a bit of a struggle. Highest grade went to CJ Proceis at 79. Chase Claypool, he was an 83. 
Boykin just below that 80 cusp at 79. Tight end, interestingly, hasn't had an 80 grade, although this data set does not include Eifert or Rudolph, who almost certainly were in that territory. Um, and then the offensive line, littered with elite grades. McGlinchey, Eichenberg, Hainsey, Stanley, Nelson, Banks, Patterson. And then uh, the defense has 80-plus grades at every position group, really numerous players at every position group. Coney, Gilman, Tillery, Love, Day, Jalen Smith, Kareem, Tranquil, uh, Jalen Elliott, Jameer Jones, Julian Aquara, Azmir Bilal. So by our count, Kelly, since 2014, has produced 22 players that hit that 80-plus grade. Some guys uh, achieved it over multiple seasons, and that's not including a few guys right on the cusp. 22 players, only one wide receiver, no running backs, no tight ends, no quarterbacks. First off, I just got to interject. I'm I'm really surprised you didn't take the bait to talk about how Deshaun Kaiser did on the Cleveland Browns as a rookie uh, going 0 for 16, but we'll just gloss over that for your sake. It's too painful. I was I was hoping that you weren't going to mention that. Um, I had high <laughs> hopes, and then really it couldn't have gone any worse. So, but the Browns are doing. I guess I guess we we unfortunately lost today. But the Browns are in a better spot. Uh, we've gotten the 0 and 16 has been it ha- was wiped from my memory before before you brought it up again <laughs> on this it, podcast. It, it was just too easy of a pot shot. But anyways, this segment specifically on quarterbacks. But yeah, it's it's worth noting. Um, you know, it was a huge offseason topic for Notre Dame about just needing better talent at the skills position at that being an area of weakness, especially relative to the likes of Alabama as was fully on display in the college football playoffs last year. And the data supports this conclusion. Kelly has done a great job producing NFL level talent, really one of the best um, programs right now in the country at generating high draft picks year in and year out 22 players that have come out of the program with real quality you can bank on at nfl level talent but only one of those at the skills position and very very importantly none at quarterback flipping to the last metric predicted points added per play so the expected points an individual player will contribute to the team per play a rating of one means every seven plays that players involved every seven plays that that player is involved in a play you should expect a touchdown a rating of zero means that on average that player never contributes to scoring Ian Book was consistently at 0.4, which was good for right around number 25 in the country in his first and third years as a starter. A slight regression his junior year. The other QBs, Jack Cohn is at 0.2 this year. Wimbush was 0.2 in 2018, 0.3 in 2017. Kaiser was 0.4 in 2016 and 0.3 in 2017. Note that you see that second year starter regression again. Golson was 0.3 in 2014. Kaiser's first season uh, as a starter was good for number 28 in the country. No other QB outside of Kaiser and Book even cracked the top 50 in this category. And Book peaked at number 24, so just barely inside the top 25. The advanced metrics don't lie, and, and they are a hard dose of reality. The reality is Brian Kelly hasn't developed quarterbacks. This is an area where he's faced a lot of criticism in the media, and especially a lot of criticism from the fan base. And probably no surprise to a lot of our listeners, the numbers back that up. Ian Book is the best statistical quarterback of the Brian Kelly era, and even that was barely in the top 25. And outside of Book, we've had circa top 50 quarterbacks, really mediocre to below average quarterback play, especially for a Power 5 program. Um, Trying to dissect what's going on there, really two themes come out. Recruiting hasn't translated into on-field success, and then there's been a plethora of quarterback competitions over the years. Let's start with QB competition. The old saying, when you have two quarterbacks, you have none. Well, here's a look at Brian Kelly's QB competitions. In 2010, Dane Chris was the opening starter and ran a pass-heavy offense that Kelly brought over from Cincinnati. Chris tears his ACL. In comes Tommy Reese. Andy then switches to a run-heavy offense that's really been a hallmark of Kelly's tenure since. Uh, given, given that injury, we won't call this one a QB competition. But then the following season, 2011, this was the first real quarterback competition for Kelly between Christ and Reese. Christ wins the job, but loses it just a few games in. Sounds familiar. Then 2012, it's Reese versus Golson. Golson mostly wins the job, but as you may recall, Reese serves as the quote-unquote closer or reliever coming in for Golson at, at various big moments that often look like Golson getting benched, but Kelly did some good you know, PR work with the baseball analogy as, as a reliever. Also kind of looks familiar to this year. Then in 2013, Golson is suspended. It's all Reese. 2014, Golson comes back. Reese has graduated, so Golson's the clear starter. Then the fun starts. 2015, 
You've got Zaire, Kaiser. Battle split with uh, battle with split time in game one. Zaire goes down. Kaiser's the starter. 2016, Kaiser holds down the job. 2017, Wimbush enters, beats out Book. 2018, Wimbush holds on to the job despite another offseason QB battle, only for Book to take over four games in. 2019 and 2020, it's all Book. And then, of course, this year, back to QB controversy. So count them up. That's quarterback controversies in 2011, 2012, 2015, 2017, 2018, and 2021. Six quarterback competitions in a decade. I'm not saying quarterback competitions aren't a thing, but 60% of the time just seems like a really high rate when we're going into the season not knowing who our starter is. And what's maybe most interesting is how often the declared winner of the QB competition doesn't last the season. And now I realize there are some injuries in here like Malik Zaire and Dane Christ, but Kelly has gotten uh, to watch these quarterbacks all offseason. Yet here we are in October and it takes a month to realize Jack Cohen might not be the best QB, it took four games for Book to overtake Wimbush. It took just a few games for Reese to overtake Christ. With Kaiser and Zaire, it was so close. The split reps were 50-50 in the opener against Texas that year. Apparently not even able to decide who was better. So now take this year as an example. It, it took the fans a few games to figure out Pine and Buckner, maybe the more talented quarterback relative to Cohn, um, or at least for this team given the offensive line situation. You know, we fans have gotten to see these QBs in a few games with with limited sample size. The coaches have been watching these kids for hours and hours over the course of several months, and their job is to assess talent. And it just seems like that talent assessment process in practice has been a huge part of the issue that that leads to some of this lack of cohesion, switching course, not, not getting the right guy, the right reps at the right time. And that leads to our next observation, actually developing these players. Without a doubt, Kelly's two most prolific quarterbacks have been Tom Reese and Ian Book. But Reese was the number 421 recruit in his class, and Book was the number 517 recruit. Three-star recruits, not the highly touted guys. Brian Wimbush was number 46 in his class, the number three dual-threat QB. Chris was the number 22 recruit overall and the number one QB. Ever Golson was number 267 overall, the number five dual-threat. Malik Zaire was the number 162 recruit overall, number three dual-threat. And none of those none of those guys panned out. That's not to mention guys uh, that transferred. Gunnar Kiel, the number 26 overall recruit and number one pro-style QB recruit. Andrew Hendricks, the number 283 overall recruit, number 11 pro-style QB. And Phil Jerkovic, number 83 overall, number four dual-threat QB. Add them up. That's seven top 300 recruits that have been in the quarterback room for Brian Kelly. All of them were at least number 11 or better in their recruiting class as either a pro style or dual threat QB, and none of them translated into on-field success. The one exception may be Deshaun Kaiser. He was number 242 in his class, so a top 300 pick. But even Kaiser, again, not like he lit up the advanced stats metrics. So where's that leave us? Look, there's all sorts of coverage on Notre Dame not having skills players like Alabama had last year or LSU the year before that. I get it especially a wide receiver. It's been a struggle. But don't forget, we've had Chase Claypool, Miles Boykin, Will Fuller, Cole Komet, Josh Adams, CJ Procise, Dexter Williams, Josh Adams. Um, none of those guys are first-team all-pro in the NFL, but they've had relatively long, successful NFL careers in, in some way, shape, or form. Now, certainly one or maybe two guys a year, probably not enough talent at the skill position, but we, we've gone 0 for 11 under Kelly in producing a QB that's an NFL caliber starter. Ian Book, jury, still out, but let's be honest, he's not looking like the next Aaron Rodgers. And the QB position is so important. If Kelly fails to win a title at ND, converting recruiting success at QB into on-field success has been and looks like it is continuing to be the Achilles heel. Is Buckner or Pine the guy to turn that around? Maybe, but history should tell us not to get our hopes up with the Brian Kelly QB rooms. So that we're going to go into our first ever, the inaugural interview for the uh, Gyrish Talk podcast. We've got walk-on running back Sam Asaf joining the show. Know this, that Notre Dame, Notre Dame football, we have redefined the way we play. All right, welcome to the show, Sam Asaf, our first guest of the podcast. Uh, let's start with the intro to all Notre Dame interviews. What's your dorm? What's your major? Where are you from? Um, so I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, um, and I'm technically in Balmer, which I've been told is a newer dorm. Um, I've never actually been in the dorm, just transferred last, last <laughs> semester. So, uh, 
with COVID and I was living off campus. So I've never actually been in the dorm. Talked to the rector, um, which is Father Pete, actually. So got to know him a little bit. Um, and my brothers all knew him pretty well. So I got to know him pretty well. over the Father summer. Pete, like the basketball priest? Yeah. Yeah, Father Pete actually baptized um, my niece. So I know Father oh. Pete very well. Yeah, cool. So, yeah. Um, so I'm in Balmer. Never actually been there. Met a couple kids from there. But that's the one weird thing about transferring is I'm not really that affiliated with the dorm. Um, but as for my major, I'm an econ major with minors in data science and Greek and Roman history. Um, and then I'm doing a concentration in financial econ and econometrics. Very cool. So both Mike, the co-host of the show, and myself were uh, econ majors as well. What's the hardest class you've had in econ so far? Who, who's the toughest professor? Um, I'd say, so before I transferred, I was an econ stats and comp sci major at my old school. Um, but I had this professor, BJ Lee, um, for econometrics. Yep. Who was a really, really challenging professor. He he just kind of said what he had to say during class and then would let you figure out everything else. Um, but luckily I had a lot of stats background before, so the class was a little bit easier, but he was a really, really challenging teacher and grader. Gotcha. Yeah, Lee was... Def- I-, I didn't have him for econometrics, and I was told that I got lucky um, yes, by, by not having lucky. his section. <laughs> so it feels like the vibe on campus this year started to return a little bit more towards normalcy as we're in year two of the COVID pandemic. How's, how's campus life? I know you transferred, but um, how's, yeah. how's the perspective been com- coming into campus this year? Um, I'd say people are just a lot more like, or a lot, they're taking things for granted a lot less. Um, I think like a lot of the hanging out, no masks or masks everywhere or, or no masks was taken for granted a lot. Um, I think people are just like, you know, just almost like, I guess, yeah, more happy to be here almost like, taking in every moment, hanging out more. Um, and I, I just, especially because I got the, the second half of a COVID semester last year um, when I came in the spring. And, you know, I, I definitely say the vibes are higher on campus. And I think football season brings higher vibes too. In addition to that, um, as I was my first game day, I remember scootering back to, to the house. Um, and I was just like, I just there was such like a different vibe of happiness before the first home game <laughs> so that that was cool to see but I definitely think you know also with less COVID and more vaccinations with people being able to come back in for town for games and having fans and visitors is, is a lot more fun brings a whole new vibe to South Bend which can get kind of boring when it's, you see the same people over and over again but yeah it's awesome there's there's nothing like game day so Sam, you're a member of Wapu Nation. For our listeners that maybe don't know what that is, that's the Notre Dame Walk-On Player Union. So you're, you're a walk-on on the football team. Wapu Nation, it's been around for a couple decades now. In fact, we, we looked up their Twitter page. It goes back all the way to the spring game, my freshman year, which probably dates me here a little bit, back in 2011. <laughs> um, last year, it's my understanding the president of Wapu Nation was John Mahoney, but but he graduated. So who, who's taking the reins this year in leading Wapu Nation? Yeah, so John John Mahoney was the president last year, and uh, at for, at formal in the spring, it's always handed off to the next president and vice president. And uh, the vice president's Jake Ripman this year, um, who was previously a holder. Now he's switched to full time, or previously a punter and holder. Now he's switched to full time receiver, scout team receiver and holder. Um, but he's actually one of my roommates and one of Mick and I's close friends. So. It's it's been fun to to live with him, get to know him pretty well, um, and then our vice president is Max Siegel, who um, from from Indiana, offensive lineman, scout lineman. So and he just got big news too, right? Didn't he just get a scholarship this week? Um, no, he he got so he sent uh, Coach Kelly after practice. We get to decide who went to media. And gotcha. Of course, of course, all the all the scholarship players kind of just wanted to send Wapu as jokes, kind of. So it was all it was all Wapu interviews. Got it, this, got it, this got it. For media, I saw I saw he was in the news, which which usually for Wapu Nation sometimes means there, yeah. there's a scholarship <laughs> ruin. Um, so what's it like in in a typical week being on on the scout team? What what's your process look like getting for an opponent and the role you play in, in getting those assignments correct? Yeah. So. Um, 
you know, every, every week, I guess I'll probably start from Monday. Um, we got Mental Monday. And Mental Monday, we come in, watch film, talk about the game for a little bit from last week. And then we lift and then either watch film, more film in our position group from last week or go into next week. Um, and so for Mondays, we're actually scout team offense, which I'm on, um, is still we're still functioning with the offense. Um, so that one doesn't actually involve too much, too much scout team prep. It's more review from the last week and getting on to the next week's defense, um, which is kind of cool to see like parts of that. Um, but as for Tuesday, um, this is when we really get into it. Um, we'll always meet about like 40 minutes before special teams being at 240s. And we'll discuss what positions we'll play, who, who we're trying to mock kind of, and, the often or the defensive GAs, the graduate assistants and analysts who coach the scout team, will kind of tell us specific tendencies that the defensive coach want us to see, and we have to mimic. Um, and we'll go through like everyone's size and you know the running back split or the tight end, like how much they like to help the tackle before or out, um, and kind of just walk through little things like that, just so we can really. I mean, we really just try and become the other team for a week. Um, and so, like, for for instance, for Wisconsin, I've been, so, I came in, I was a walk-on running back, switched to tight end because we had some in, in, injuries. Um, and so, for, like, Wisconsin, for instance, like, the tight ends pull a lot to defensive ends, so, and, like, linebackers, so that was a pretty painful week as tight end, <laughs> for tight end, but, um, and then, so, Tuesday, Wednesday, we're really scout heavy, we're in full pads, you know, we'll have probably... Four, three or four scout team, like lot, pretty live, like thudding scout team periods. Um, and those periods are each 15 minutes. Um, and then but we'll have a lot of seven on seven or run fits, walkthroughs, all that stuff. Um, and then as for Thursday, it's kind of the same, but less, less hitting. And we're like only in like these little shells kind of. Um, they're called spider pads, but they're just like really light shoulder pads that we kind of wear. Um, and then as for Friday, you know, it's kind of like a Thursday, but a lot shorter and a little bit slower tempo, but just get, just trying to give them the best look really kind of just trying to buy into looking like the other team. So, so who far this year, who's been the toughest team to mimic from, from an opponent perspective? Um, I'd say... The Wisconsin, Wisconsin was a pretty tough team to mimic um, so far um, just because they put – well, our tight end depth was hurt when Kevin Bauman got hurt because they took one of the scout team tight ends, and we only had two before that. Um, and they run a lot of 12 or 13 personnel, which is one running back, two tight ends, or one running back, three tight ends. Um, and so that was the week I had to officially switch to tight end for scout team at least. Um but they're they're pretty hard, and I did do a little bit of running back that week too. And their running backs just like really ran downhill and did not look for gaps or anything. They kind of just like stuck their nose in there and just went downhill. Which it's just weird to like change your running style to mimic them. And I thought they had a, an interesting run style that's a little bit different than ours, so that was a, a bit challenging to mimic. Got it. Makes sense. So I went deep into the film study on, on MaxPrep.com to, to get ready for our interview. And first off, you're not on the offensive side of the ball as as running back or, or tight end, but but in high school, you were basically Marcus Freeman's version of the Viper on on defense. And so I I saw you lined up in two technique as an edge rusher, three technique as an interior D lineman. You were playing outside linebacker and will look like three three five looks. So for Pace Academy, you were playing all over the place. And then second of all, you were a havoc machine. That that's a stat we talk a lot about on on our podcast. And it, it looked like you had some permanent real estate in the opposing team's backfield. <laughs> so, first question, with that much success on the defensive side of the ball in, in high school, h- how did you make the switch to offense? Yeah, so definitely, you know, as you said, at Pace, I, was, I, I always liked the defensive side of the ball a lot more. Offense kind of alternated from playing blocking tight end to every position on the offensive line, center guard tackle as a pretty undersized alignment. Um so that was that was my high school career really. Um, but so when I transferred, um, I was here for like a month or month and a half probably without being on the football team. 
and they just had tryouts where you kind of just like run around, they run you through, through some drills, and then the coaches all watch that. Um, and then I guess the coaches just kind of pick and choose who they want. Um, and Mick, my older brother, who I think we'll hit on later, um, is played running back for Coach Taylor, who's our position coach, um, and they had a great relationship. And I think I've been told there was there was some there was some uh, talk about if I was going to be that viper position um, or or a running back, but I think Coach Taylor ultimately edged out and got me at running back. Um, but I've never played actually running back before in my life before I got on the team, so <laughs> it was definitely a steep learning curve during that first spring ball. But you know, Coach Taylor couldn't have been more patient with me; taught me a lot. <laughs> so. I was almost like this clean little whiteboard that I got to learn all the skills from him. So I guess that was cool. That's cool. So you're you're maybe leading my, my next question, but and and you've maybe never even broken a big run before. But the question is, what would you rather do: break a big run or or blow up someone with with a big hit as as a defender? Uh, I'm I'm gonna go have to the big run. Um, I don't know if that's because I've never done that before, but uh, <laughs> I just think. I think that'd be something electric just to be able to break it to the line of scrimmage and just keep going. So we're a little thin at linebacker this year. In fact, Kelly said that we're going to need to find more depth to, to provide some support for, for J.D. Bertrand on, on, on the outside linebacker position. Are, are you ready to cross-train for Freeman and, and get on the other side of the ball, or, or have you hung it up and, and you're focused at tight end now? Um, I don't know. I, I guess, I mean, I'd be happy to do it if they asked, but I'm sure there's a few people... A few people in mind above me in the depth chart there. So <laughs> makes sense. So let's switch to another topic, big one that's all over college football this year. Name, image, and likeness, NIL. It's getting a lot of media coverage. And now I suspect that you're not getting the seven figure sponsorship deals like, you know, Alabama's Bryce Young or, or some of the other stars in, in college football. But I did see you and the rest of the running back room get get some NIL action with, with Arby's recently on Twitter. So how's NIL impacting the locker room? Any notable deals? Guys talking about it a lot? Like, just what's that vibe in the locker room? Yeah, um, no, it's, it's definitely a cool thing to be a part of. Um, I'd say, you know, it has like a really positive vibe in the locker room. I think a lot of people are kind of concerned that it might call, like, cause like fragmentation within the team and stuff. Um, but like people just like could not be happier when like someone gets a deal like, of course, you'll make fun of them a little bit for their post, but like, you know, people just could not be happier when like other people get deals and stuff. Um, and it was cool that Kyron was one of the main RBs running backs to start and all the WAPU running backs figured we might as well throw our names out there, see if they can select us as one of the running backs. And they, they ended up choosing us, which was cool. Nice. Um, yeah. So I, I imagine a lot of this too also gets channeled through social media. Who on the team, I'm going to age myself, I, I grew up in the, the age of Facebook and, and Snapchat towards the end, I'm, I'm guessing you guys are all on TikTok now. Who's got the best social media presence on the team? Ooh, um, that's hard. Uh, or who's got the I worst? Think, <laughs> ooh, oh, the best, um, I'd probably say um, Kyle Hamilton has a pretty good social media presence with his whole podcast. Um, I know he he makes some some good posts, but um, I personally like think Wapu Nation has the best Instagram. Um, I think their Instagram is has some great content, great reposts, great posts. So I think everyone should check their Instagram out. But uh, I think I think their Instagram always always gives me a good laugh. That's awesome. So our podcast, we're heavily focused on data and analytics. We talk about pro football focus grades, advanced box scores. I mentioned havoc rates earlier, efficiency ratings, predictive analytics, sort of a new school approach to football. How how's that play into the team? Did you guys talk about data and, and analytics? Does that come into your practice? Does that come into film study? You mentioned tendencies earlier. Is that talked about amongst the players, or is it largely kept at the coaching level? Um, yeah. How are you seeing that come into the program? Yeah, so... Um you know, I'm obviously very interested in that with my data data science minor and forecasting business and all that. Um, so I, I, I really like to dig into that stuff too. But um, on a lot of times on like those those initial meetings when we're kind of talking about the team to start, um, we we do get a breakdown of 
it kind of makes me mad as a data scientist, but it's just like raw percentages of what they do. Just like how many times they're in this coverage over the amount of total amount of plays, which I feel like we could get a better breakdown, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just trying to overcomplicate it, but we do look at just like raw percentages of what, how many times they're in this coverage or, you know, if they're in this formation or like if we're in this formation, what are their main blitzes? Um, and we will have percentages of, you know, like if we're in 12 strong, whatever, strong, right, tight end of the right offset running back, then what are their most likely blitzes and all that stuff? Or what down is it? Um, so we do have all that, all those percentages that we do. We all, at least the running backs that haven't been in it. I guess we do it in team meetings too, but we do look at all those percentages. Yeah. Got it. Um, good stuff. And so I mentioned our podcast who, other than Gyrish Talks, I know Gyrish Talk is, is your favorite Notre Dame football uh, p- podcast and, and go-to, but who who else do the, d- does the locker room and, and you like for, you know, f- favorite football media and personalities outside of Gyrish Talk and, and maybe the Wapu Nation Instagram page? Yeah, um, I'd say, you know, the only other one that anyone really knows about is uh, Inside the Garage, which obviously four of our teammates run. Um so those, that, that's you know, the Kyle the, Hamilton podcast. Yeah, the Kyle Hamilton and then his other three roommates who are all on the team. Um, one of them, fellow Wapu Nation member. Um, so you know, I'd say that's the only one, the only other one that people are really aware of. Sometimes we'll get some funny clips that everyone will make fun of them for, but I'd say that's we we don't really focus on the media that much in the locker room. Yeah, I imagine trying to t- tune out the noise. Okay, so let's go to some quick hitters. I'm I'm gonna touch on a few uh, comparisons. So first one, I'm I'm also a younger brother, and I couldn't stand getting compared to my older brother, but but I couldn't resist. Um, I know you and I are both the better looking brothers in in our sibling <laughs> relationships, but I've got to bring it up. Your older brother Mick, uh, also a former uh, walk on and running back in Notre Dame, Ian's book roommate founder of an awesome startup called Yoke, where fans can interact with college and, and pro athletes. So first off, how's Mick doing? Mick's doing well. I was, I, he's actually still living here, so I was just hanging out with him before. Um, but he's, he's doing well, you know, supporting me, always, always helpful whenever I can ask him some questions or need some advice, especially with football stuff. But he's doing great. Good, good to hear. And so most important question of the day, on the record, who's, who's the better uh, offensive player, Mick or Sam? Um, so, I mean, strictly analytically, um, if we're counting the spring game, Coach Taylor was quick to remind me that my, uh, average carry is higher than his. Um, okay. But to be fair, he, he has played in real games, which I have not. Um, but if we're counting the spring but game. But you got more played, eligibility left. Yeah. So we'll see. Okay. We'll, we'll call it a toss up, but sounds like Sam's yeah. later in the clubhouse. Um, so other comparisons, you transferred to Notre Dame, you were previously at Amherst and played college lacrosse before transferring, right? Yep. And so you've, you've got another teammate who also transferred to Notre Dame, Jack Cohn, and he also grew up playing lacrosse. So who's the best lacrosse player on the team? You or Jack Cohn? I don't know. We, we always bucker, we always bicker about this. Uh, we also throw Buckner in the mix cause he was, he was also pretty good at lacrosse. Um, but I don't know. I, I'm going to have to go with me here. I think, I, I think I've worked on my skills most recently, but um, we, we always play around, do some air dodging on each other. So I don't know. I, I'm going to have to go with me just strictly out of confidence, but they were both pretty, pretty good. All right. So Mick, is, or sorry, uh, Sam is two for two so far in the comparisons. Last <laughs> one, you uh, went to Pace Academy in Atlanta your former high school teammate, Jaden Thomas, he's also on the team, freshman wide receiver, four-star recruit, so he's a little bit more highly touted than you were. Um, which Pace Academy standout will end their career with more touchdowns at Notre Dame, Jaden Thomas or Sam Asaf? I'm going to have to go with JT here. Um, I, I, don't, I don't foresee any major touchdowns in my, in my future, but I, I definitely see a lot in JT's future, so I'm going to have to give that one to him. All right, so you're, you're, you're two for three. That, that'll get you in the yeah. Hall of Fame, at, at least on the Garish Talk podcast. <laughs> so last, last question, and, and as a reminder to our listeners, we're actually recording this before the Virginia Tech game. Um, so when Notre Dame goes 11-1, and one, squeaks into the fourth and final spot of the college football playoff, 
which team do you and the rest of the guys in the locker room want to want to face off in in the first round of the college football playoff? That's that's a hard question. Um, we'll, we'll, promise we'll avoid bulletin board material here. Uh, um, I don't know. I, it's de- definitely hard. I don't. I know in the locker room we we really don't discuss that at all. I, we're it's it's really impressive as kind of trans- going from a fan to a player. Um, obviously, like a fan of my brother and the team in general. Uh, just seeing like how locked in people are in our week. Um, but it's like it's really like the only team you hear about in the week is like the team we're playing next. Um, but you know, I don't know. I, I I wish I was playing college football longer so I could have you know a personal rivalry with someone that I'd like to play. But um, I I think it'd be fun to play you know any of the teams we previously played in the college football playoffs um, just to get another shot at them who we haven't played in the regular season. Um, I think that'd be a a fun game just to, you know prove ourselves again but i don't have a specific team really yet but i i, I certainly like I, I i certainly like hearing that the team's locked in week week to week i guess i'll close out then with with one other question you know obviously coming off a tough loss against cincy getting geared back up for virginia tech and, and then by week after that midterms also going a, a, around um so, so a lot going on for for the players just how's the overall vibe of the team confidence still up you know how, how's that going in the locker room yeah um I was you know this was obviously mine and a lot of other people's first home home loss and you know home first regular season loss for a lot of people um so I was I was definitely you know a little bit concerned with how the mood would be in the locker room um this week but i i was really impressed with how the whole team responded um and just like kept the vibes up and we're just like you know we're not gonna let let a team beat us twice like in, in separate weeks so um people people definitely you know bounced back and kept the vibes high and they're just you know it happened we gotta move on we gotta stay focused so i, I was really you know happy with how how we did in the locker room and as as a as the vibe skill for the team that's great to hear well sam thank you so much for the time really appreciate the inside look in, into the program from from a player's perspective and, and really love all the insights yeah yeah thank you so much for having me it was awesome all right brett that was a great interview it was really great hearing from from you and sam very insightful uh look forward to having more interviews in the future um with that being said everyone enjoy the bye week and Gyrish. Gyrish.